Well, last week we looked at John 18 and the first 11 verses in that chapter, and we saw how Jesus uh, endured the same temptation Adam faced in the Garden of Eden, complete with a, a serpent-like figure in the person of Judas with an intimate betrayal in the place where Jesus went to find communion with God, that is, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was kind of an Eden 2.0. So Eden and, and Gethsemane are, are connected you know, really as sanctuaries where God and his son communed, both, but also in the sense that, that Jesus, who is the new and the better Adam, would ascend into heaven from this very spot and would begin to bring God's image and dominion to bear over the whole earth, which of course was what Adam and Eve's calling was. And that's, that's really the book of Acts. Well, John 18, beginning with verse 12 and going through about verse 40, continues the same narrative as it switches uh, between scenes and characters, comparing Jesus and his disciples and what was happening to each of them at the same time. And like the first 11 verses, it also makes a connection with a very important moment in the history of the world via Genesis 22. So over the next two weeks, we're covering basically verses 12 through 27. But this week, instead of doing all at one, one shot, we're focusing on what happens with Jesus. And then next week, we're going to look at Peter and John. So chapter 18, let's pick it up with verse 12, and then we're going to jump a little bit. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's jump ahead to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this moment in history because it is everything that the world hangs on. Our hope, our future, our redemption hangs on Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God who gave his life for us. It also hangs on his resurrection because without it, we would remain dead in our sins and in the ground. So Lord, we thank you for this time. May we meditate well on this. May your spirit be among us that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see just how wonderful and good our Savior is and just how much he loves us. I pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, last week we saw that Jesus was, well, not merely responding to Judas and the Roman cohort of a couple hundred soldiers, no, he, the text indicates that he was in full control of the situation. So he wasn't playing chess with Satan and those who served as his proxies. No, he's the one who made the chessboard and 
has put the pieces in place. So when we read in verse 12 that Jesus was arrested and and bound, this is something that Jesus allowed to happen to him. The one who had demonstrated with the mention of his name, if you remember last week, the great I am, and put the arresting force, all couple hundred people, on their knees, he consented to being bound and taken. And when I say consent, I don't mean that he was play acting. He was not like Superman in handcuffs acting out a charade with a a smirk on his his face, just waiting to break free and show how dumb his captors are. No, this is what submission to the Father in real humility actually looks like. This is what Paul is after in Philippians 2 when he says this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's been saying, this has got to be our mindset as the people of God towards each other and really to the world. And we get it from Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So he doesn't have to search after his own glory. He's not looking for honor, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, really a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So John highlights that very thing, that that humility through the binding of Jesus and what I think is actually linked to Isaac in Genesis 22. Now think about it. Isaac was the promised, miraculous born child of the covenant who consented to be bound by his father Abraham and was placed on an altar on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. Does this sound like anyone else you maybe have heard of? The answer is Jesus, if you didn't know, right? Jesus purposefully fits with this pattern. Consider, too, for example, that Moriah, the place where Abraham bound Isaac and put him on that altar, is the same mountain where Solomon would build the temple in Jerusalem. Again, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be crucified on Moriah as an atoning sacrifice and pleasing aroma to God. As Hebrews 11 comments, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's how the author of Hebrews reads Genesis 22. So whereas Isaac was figuratively raised from the dead by God by way of a ram, that God provided for the sacrifice in his place, Jesus was literally raised from the dead by God and literally provided the way over death by his own body. So Jesus is a better Isaac who brought life from the death through his atoning sacrifice and his resurrection. And you see, this is often missed. His death and resurrection hang together. They go together. There is no life for us without both of them. So what's on view in John from really here to the cross is a better Isaac being led to the altar for us in our salvation by 
his own consent. He chose this path in obedience to his father. So verse 13 tells us that Jesus was led to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the actual high priest. And I'm just going to say this up front because I'm self-conscious. Uh, if I pronounce it like, like Americans do, it's going to be Annas. But since I've got so much Midwestern in me, I'm, I'm too embarrassed to say it like that. So I'm doing more of the Greek pronunciation of Annas, even though that makes me sound like I'm hoity-toity. I don't mean to be that way. It's really, I just don't want to sound Midwestern. So there you go. You can pronounce it whichever way you want. We know the guy. His name is Honest, right? So to give a, a quick, sorry about that, to give a quick historical backdrop to this, Honest had been the high priest before his son-in-law. That's why the text refers to him as, his son, as the high priest. And he had this position, typically you would have this position for life. And he had already been high priest uh, for about a decade or so before he was deposed by the Roman prefect Quirinius. Now, Caiaphas replaced Annas at that time, but even so, uh, Annas was still the head of the family, and so he still held power. So while he's not officially in the role of high priest, he was the power behind the power, and if you think of him functioning kind of like a godfather, or the head of the mafia in some way, or, or a crime boss or whatever. The crime boss is a little strong, but it kind of gets at it. You, you, you understand what's going on. Now, I, I say crime boss is a little strong. Historically, if, we, if you look at the way popular people or common crowds understood him, it was in that light, that he was corrupt and vile, and he was pursuing wealth and power and authority. That's how they viewed the Sanhedrin. That's why the Pharisees so often opposed them. They were kind of grassroots conservatives. So that said, all of this is, is made clear. Uh, so while he's not officially in that role, and he's, he's got the, the power behind the power, so to speak, all of this is made clear when in John 11, you know, after Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, the families of the Sanhedrin came together. So these are the ruling elites and their power base is essentially the temple. So it's kind of a religious power base. They come together with the Pharisees. And so this is like the wealthy ruling elites making common cause with their cultural and political enemies uh, in Israel. Uh, you know, the grassroots conservatives, the Pharisees. And these two groups made common cause together because they agreed, both of them, that Jesus needed to die. And what's interesting is that they did not deny that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. That would have been probably the easiest thing to do, but they don't because it's undeniable for them. And at the same time, they didn't, you know, they couldn't discredit what they saw Jesus doing. So just think on that for a minute. You know, they witnessed a man resurrected by Jesus, and they knew what dead was. And still, they rejected Jesus. Now, the reason they decided to kill Jesus was because they feared that the Jewish population would actually believe in Jesus. And in response, the Romans would step in and remove the elites and the Pharisees from power and influence, which they enjoyed, and possibly destroy the nation itself. So their concern was not actually for those they ruled over. And despite being deeply religious, at least on the appearance, I mean, the high priest and the Sanhedrin ruled over the temple. 
That was their domain. Even so, they weren't concerned with pursuing God on God's terms. The central theme of Jesus' preaching, by the way, the central thing he preached about was the kingdom of God showing up right then and there. And in some measure, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees believed Jesus was serious about trying to bring the kingdom of God into reality. The issue is that they didn't want the kingdom on his terms. As an aside, this is still an issue for many Christians. We want a kingdom, just not on Jesus' terms. Now, the irony of the plot against Jesus is that it came from Caiaphas and probably more accurately from, from Annas. But from Caiaphas, the current high priest, who suggested that it would be better for one man to die, Jesus, than for the nation to be destroyed. And the irony is that he's the high priest, the one who is holy to the Lord, and that he's right. He's right that it would be good for Jesus to die for the nation, but not for the reasons he thinks. He thinks by killing Jesus, his family, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, would hold on to power and influence and Israel, in turn, would, would not risk being destroyed by the Romans and thus, in their view, be saved. So the high priest rightly you know, wanted Jesus to be sacrificed for the sake of his people. But as is so you know, indicative of, of the human heart, like Judas, he, he does it for entirely selfish and evil reasons. It's very much like, like Joseph, you know, another son who, like Jesus, was sold for the slave's price by his own people. It's what Joseph says in light of what his brothers did to him. What the high priest intended for evil against the Messiah, God intended for good and brought life from it. So Jesus made the chessboard. Can't get around that. You could try and play chess with him, but good luck. He made the chessboard. He sets the pieces in place. And like Isaac, he was willingly bound and led to the altar. Now, what we see in verses 19 through 24 isn't exactly illegal, but it wasn't an official trial either. The official trial, which was really a sham trial because the court had decided the outcome before it ever began, that would happen shortly, and we'll get to that in a matter of weeks. Now, this interrogation happened at the Godfather's home, and that's on purpose. It's not only hidden from view, it's, it's meant to uh, intimidate Jesus and show him who the real power actually is. But, but Jesus, you know, unlike his disciples, was not intimidated by Annas or the threat of violence. So we read then that, that Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And it's, you know, it's not as if he didn't know what, what Jesus taught. I mean, that's not even the point. I mean, remember the Sanhedrin and Pharisees had already decided that Jesus needed to die because they knew what he was teaching. Now, this was an interrogation based on the fear that Jesus and his disciples were secretly trying to overthrow the Sanhedrin and take power for themselves. I mean, Honest is, is really wanting Jesus to confess that. Why do they fear that this is what Jesus was going to do? That's, that's a great question. It's because it's the way the world sees power. Right? It's why they, why they sent what appeared to them you know, an overwhelming show of force to arrest Jesus 
and intimidate him and his disciples. And of course, it worked on his disciples, but not on Jesus. And to them, you know, why else would Jesus gather a following if he wasn't trying to overthrow the Sanhedrin and in turn Rome? Why else could, what else could the kingdom of God possibly mean? So in other words, Israel's leaders were no different than the world itself, at least in terms of how they thought about power and authority. They saw power and authority in the same tyrannical ways, and, and they, they ruled for, for selfish gain. And the, the people knew it. So in response, Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus had preached the same thing everywhere, even in the center of Israelite nationalism and power, which was the temple. Surely, you know, the man who had authority over the temple knew this. Jesus is, is calling him out. But th there's actually more to Jesus' answer than that. Like the previous section of chapter 18 where Jesus responded as the great I am. Remember where he says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they, they all hit the deck. This section continues with that same pattern with Jesus saying, I have spoken. I have taught. I have said. Jesus held nothing back in his ministry. He had announced the gospel of the kingdom to the world and in synagogues, large and small, and in the temple itself, where all the Jews by law came together. And what makes this so striking is that Jesus, he does not give a rendition of his teaching. He actually gives himself to the high priest. He himself is the gospel of the kingdom. He is the word of God in the flesh revealed to the high priest in his own home. Now think on this. Annas has got something better in his own house than what Moses took in at the burning bush. And yet Annas rejected it. As an aside, just looking at this, this small section, Jesus shows us here what it looks like to speak truth to power. And he's really just living out what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. See, Jesus neither fears the high priest, but at the same time, he doesn't look down on him either. He's firm. He's honest. He never loses his composure, and he never stops showing him respect, despite how shady honest was. I mean, Jesus, again, he's the model for Romans 13 and how you speak to power, how you respect power. And we either tend to fear authorities or we mock them or we condemn them. It's, it's a fairly rare Christian who actually believes God put all the authorities in place, not just the ones we like or the ones that benefit us. And if Jesus is any indication, it's possible to speak the truth in love even when you deeply disagree with someone or when they hold power over you, and even when they negate your rights. Jesus called out the high priest, really both for his, his lack of belief, but also for not producing witnesses. That's verses, verse 21. Honest was interrogating Jesus' teaching because he thought it was dangerous, and yet, as the law required, he had not produced a single witness against Jesus. That's why he says, once you go ask them, He's looking for witnesses. Now, there is nothing wrong 
There is nothing wrong with Christians appealing to their rights. Jesus did it here, and Paul did it multiple times in the book of Acts. Nor is there anything wrong with pointing out an injustice and calling the authorities to task. It's how you do it. It's how you do it and how you respond when things go against you that's so instructive for us with our master, with our Lord and Savior. Now, in response to what Jesus says here, the high priest servant just open hand slaps Jesus and says, is that how you answer the high priest? This is insulting. It's meant to shame Jesus. It's meant to really make him kind of cower in fear. The servant, you see, was dependent on the high priest for his power, and so he's acting like a faithful dog. He's defending his master's so-called honor and just barking at him. And Jesus, in response, says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? You see, Jesus, he spoke as one with authority. And that's exactly what the crowds noticed with the Sermon on the Mount too. In the servant, he saw this as well. So this isn't about the content of what Jesus said or the legality of it. It's that Jesus' very presence challenged the authority of the high priest and everybody knew it. Everyone could feel it. In this moment, like throughout his entire ministry, Jesus is the embodiment of Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And for good reason, the Psalms begin with this one, with the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Jesus is Psalm 1 in the flesh. He's the light shining in the darkness. Now, the high priest and his servant are very much like Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage in the people's plot in vain? Or literally in the Hebrew, it's meditate on vanity. So if the righteous meditate on God's law, those who reject God meditate on vanity, on vapor, on selfish gain, whatever it may be. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Again, this is comparing against Psalm 1 against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this servant, under the direct influence of the high priest, has taken on the role of judging what is good and evil apart from God himself. And like the nations, like the kings who plot against the Lord and his anointed, he rages against the light, because the darkness cannot comprehend it. In contrast, Jesus delights in the law of the Lord, and his response to this insult is to turn the other cheek. Now, one form of turning the other cheek can be to remain silent, and we will see that with Jesus later. But it can also be to ask honest questions of the one hitting you. You see, Jesus stood within his rights, and everybody knew it. He was questioned without witnesses. He was slapped without cause. And in response, he took the hit and spoke the truth. It's like what Theodore Beza commented. He said, it belongs to the church of God to receive blows rather than to inflict them. But she is an anvil 
that has worn out many hammers. If you want to know what real power looks like, it doesn't look like the hammer. It looks like the anvil. And our God is the anvil. That's Jesus. He is an anvil that has worn out every hammer. And his disciples, his church, would eventually learn to live like this too. And that's our calling as well. So the scene ends with, with Annas in silence. You know, despite his show of force, which was significant, despite having home field advantage, he has no answer, no answer for Jesus. And so he sends him bound to his son-in-law, to Caiaphas, the official high priest. Now, this is the second time that John has mentioned that Jesus was bound. And if you've been paying attention in John, he repeats words on purpose, on purpose. And I think, again, the reason he does this is to emphasize what we began with, that Jesus is a new and better Isaac bound for an altar on Moriah to die for the sins of the world. And I love the commentator Borchert's observation on this verse. He says, Jesus is bound, but he's unhindered. Jesus is bound, but he's unhindered. They're throwing hammers, but he's an anvil. This is a path he's chosen out of love for his father in the world. The great I am has humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And it's like what Scott Swain recently observed. He said, it isn't the having of self-interest that is sinful. You know, think about that. It's not the having of self-interest that is sinful. I mean, after all, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, which means you, at some point you're paying attention to yourself, right? And it indicates a, a level of some self-interest. He continues, but rather it's the ruling of self-interest or really the pursuit of self as the goal of our lives. That's what tyranny is. It's my life at the expense of your life. He continues, sin says we must choose between God, neighbor, and self. Think about that. Sin says you got to choose. It's going to be God. It's going to be your neighbor. It's going to be yourself. By the way, choose yourself. That's what sin says. Grace rightly orders a relation of God, neighbor, and self. We see that in Jesus. He knows who he is. He's confident in who he is. He loves his father to the point of death for the sake of his neighbor, right? So Jesus was not ruled by self-interest. You know, as Paul says, he did not find equality with God something to chase after. That is, he did not need to pursue glory and honor. No, out of his love, he delighted in God the Father and he pursued after us. He is the lamb who was slain for us in our salvation and by his resurrection, like Isaac, we will have life forever. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for his, his righteousness. We thank you for his love for you and for us. Without him, we are absolutely lost. We pray all of these things in his name through the power of the Spirit. Amen.